So we're back in Revelation this morning. This is actually week 13. We took a few weeks off and uh, for Christmas stuff, Advent stuff, and then now we're back in the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 8. We'll actually go through chapter 9. I'm going to cover a lot of ground in the, ver- in the Bible, but I will not read all of it, okay? Um, so don't panic. Two chapters. This is going to take forever. I got all this extra time. Not really. We took plenty of time this morning for worship. So let me do a quick review because it has been a few weeks and it's really important that we kind of keep some principles in our minds as we go along. Um, Kind of the presuppositions I'm operating from as I'm teaching this book to you. And I just want to remind you of those. First, we, we began this section with another vision from John. If you recall, you have the throne room of God. There's the throne on an elevated platform. And God the Father is there, and he's radiating out like these bright, like sunshiny colors, emeralds and reds and like a rainbow of color shooting out, which is his glory. Okay, And then you have this um, successive circles going out of different types of people representing different groups. Okay, you have the the seraphim around the throne and they're doing things for God and declaring things. Kind of like just like Isaiah saw in the scripture I read a few minutes ago. They're they're not just worshiping but they're executing God's will. They're like his his uh, emissaries, okay? And then you have the elders on their thrones which represents the church. And just over and over again, leaving their throne, throwing their crown down at the feet of God and falling on their face, worshiping just over and over and over again. This is their thing. And there in that circle is Jesus, the lion and the lamb seen both ways. Um, And then beyond that, you just have the multitudes of angels and everything that God has created. All the creatures God has created, angels, people, the whole thing. Just out as far as the eye can see, and they're all worshiping God, okay? And then you see Jesus ascend the throne, right? And all of a sudden you see a new detail, which is in the right hand of the Father on the throne is a scroll, and this is the will of God, right? And this is like for the, for the last days, basically the will of God to be executed from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming, right? It's the last, all the stuff he wants to do. And he's looking for somebody to do it. And nobody's worthy to open up the scroll because it's sealed. Except for the lamb, the lion, Jesus, who ascends the steps, takes the scroll, and executes the will of God. And so everything we're reading after that, that vision, is just what comes out of the scroll. Okay? That's also what we're going to read with the seven trumpets this morning is just... What's coming out of that scroll was being released or executed, what was written in the scroll, all right? The other thing we need to do, because people get very confused, is that these, there are three sections of seven things repeating, okay? You have seven seals, which we did a few weeks ago. Then you have seven trumpets, which we'll do today. And then you have seven bowls, which we'll do next, okay? That is, I believe, and most Bible scholars believe, you can never say all, <laughs> but most believe that's, that's just repeating, showing the same period of time from different angles and perspectives, okay? 
The analogy I've given you a couple of times now is like watching a football game and you have different cameras placed in different places around the, the stadium. Some are like up high where you can see the whole field. Maybe one's down at the end zone where you can see the ball coming towards you or away from you, right? And maybe one's like zoomed in on one team maybe, for example, and you have, and so we're just looking at the same period of time on the timeline from different angles and perspectives, all right? So there's some rep repetition of themes, all right? Um, and that's, that, I, that alone clarifies so many things about how to read this, all right? And sort of eliminates a lot of, of the chaff that comes out when people talk about the book of Revelation when it gets kind of crazy. The other thing I've been telling you is that I believe all this book is symbolic. We're not to take it literally in a literal sense. We take it, some people say literally, this drives me crazy as an only English teacher, right? They say literally, but what they really mean is, I mean, I really, really mean it. Like, I literally flew over here. What they mean is they came here really fast and they tried really hard to get here on time. They don't mean they actually sprouted wings and flew here under their own power or chartered a helicopter or whatever unless they actually did that, right? And so it doesn't mean, when I say we're not taking it literally, I don't mean we're not taking it seriously and like it's real. This is the word of God, okay? It's just that this is symbolic language. Like when he's describing these things, they mean something, right? And the question is, what does it mean? So you're not going to find me, for example, like looking in history for a specific guy that we would call the Antichrist, right? We're looking for what does it mean to be an Antichrist? What does that mean? And then all of a sudden you can see it everywhere, right? Once you define what that means, you're like, oh, well, there's like millions of people that have qualified for that title, right? And so that's kind of the idea is that we're looking at this symbolically. The other thing that advice I've been giving you, and it becomes very important in these verses, which is if you're not careful you can kind of overanalyze the book of Revelation. And you can start breaking all these images because there's some amazing, like, like imagination-inducing imagery, right? With lots of cool and sometimes scary details. And you can start, you break it down into its tiniest little parts and you get really lost, right? You miss the forest for the trees. And, and that's not how, I don't believe that's how this should be read, Okay. You really get confused and messed up. Just what does it mean? Like from the 30,000-foot view, what is this saying? And all of a sudden, it's like the imagery comes alive and it makes more sense to you. If you get down in the weeds and you're one of those people, I tend to be one of those people, where you're like, why does it have 12 eyes or 24 eyes? And you're like, you know, now you're searching the number 24 in the Bible and it's just, it can get crazy, all right? So if you want to do that, go for it, but that's not what I'm going to do, all right? Okay, that's a pretty good review, I think. If you're still confused, I would suggest going back to my introduction, week one, and listen to that on the website to get a little more of that information. Okay, I think at this point, the other kind of introductory thing I want to say about, especially the trumpets and then with the bowls that come next there's a lot of wrath in here. 
Uh, and I use that word on purpose because it's sort of a trigger word for people. Right? It's not just judgment we feel a little better about, um, but when you say wrath, it just sounds so angry, doesn't it? It just sounds so like, let's not talk about that, right? Um, often at this point in reading the book of Revelation, I think people begin to struggle and feel uncomfortable with all this vivid imagery of the wrath of God. You get these really detailed descriptions, and some of it, some of it is, is scary. Some of the verses I'm going to read this morning, if you really imagine it, which you should be doing, it's scary. It's the kind of stuff you'd see, like, in a scary movie that I wouldn't want to see in a scary movie, if you ask me, right? So people may begin to think that God's wrath seems a little over the top, a little too much, a little out of proportion, like, hey... Simmer down. This seems like a lot. Why are you so intense? Why is this so, why are so many people dying? And should I get this feeling like maybe it's too relentless, too extreme, too angry, maybe too violent. Seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. In America, we're really big on the punishment fitting the crime. So I want to address that before we even get into these verses, because if I don't, some of you will just really struggle with that and not actually see what the scriptures say. All right. The trouble with that is that it's not with what's written on the page. Okay, we can't say the the Bible is too stark or that God is too wrathful because if God does it, he's right. Right? So the problem is where? It's with me. It's very popular to think that the God of the Old Testament is kind of grumpy and wrathful, kind of Zeus-like. And the God of the New Testament has sort of chilled. He's chilled out, and he's sort of like, hey, man, you know, you got like San Francisco Jesus, God in the New Testament, and like angry Greek God in the Old Testament. The truth is, it's the same God, Old Testament, that was for, for our San Francisco friends over there, all right? Uh, it's the same God, right? He's not less anything in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. It's the same God, and that's really important, and I realize that's hard for you to grapple with. But you've got to start there. It's as if Jesus comes along in the New Testament and kind of tames God so that he isn't wrathful anymore, but that's not true. Because you see the same God all over the New Testament. Even Jesus himself talked about hell quite a lot. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. So this idea we get, this perception we get about Jesus as being this kind of hippie version of God, you know, wearing, you know, sandals and just, uh, that he is that, he is peaceful, he is loving, he is merciful, but there is also an aspect of God that is holy, 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 right? read that this morning. As one example, I want to Psalm 94, 1 through 11. I thought about, I almost read like 10 of these, but there's just not time. This one's good. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance. Oh man, what? That's what it says. O Lord, God of vengeance. It says it twice. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? 
They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. That's just one example. So if you're uncomfortable with these verses, then I suggest you examine a couple of things in your heart, okay? One is, is your view of God's holiness too low? Meaning you have diminished how holy he actually is. Therefore, sin is not that big of an offense against him because he's not that holy. Have you made Jesus out to be something like a much better version of yourself? Do you imagine Jesus to be like you at your best? I'll never be as good as Jesus. That's true. Like never. <laughs> right? Like even at your, on your best day, even when you get to heaven and you are no longer like burdened with a sin nature and the burden of your flesh and all of that, you're still not going to be as awesome as Jesus, okay? You're not in the same category. He is not a better version of you. He is not flawed, but with pure intentions. He's far more than that. Secondly, is your view of your own sin too low? Have you minimized the seriousness of your own sin against God so that it seems like, like not that big of a deal? I mean, it's bad. I mean, I shouldn't sin. But it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't deserve the stuff I'm going to read here. Have you forgotten that every individual sin carries the full weight of eternal damnation within it? Every single sin carries in it the full weight of hell every single one now i'm not flattening sin and making them all the same the consequences of sin are very different me stealing a pack of gum from the grocery store versus killing someone i think we all know those are different things but both of them carry the full weight of hell in them both of them are full rebellion I love the first sin, the sin that created all of it, is a simple thing and not a big thing. Biting an apple and eating something God said don't eat. It seems so small. It seems like God kind of over, did God overreact? No. All he did was eat an apple. I mean, apples are healthy, right? It was organic, Jesus. He said, but I told you not to eat it. That simple act of rebellion, as simple as it was, was enough to cascade hell into the earth and curse the whole thing. Yeah. And so what we tend to do, I think, when we read scriptures like this and we're uncomfortable, is, is a sign that we've either, probably maybe both, diminished the holiness of God. Somehow he's, 
he, he's, not, he, he's closer to me and my weakness than, I, than he really is, or I've diminished the seriousness of my own sin. I don't actually recognize. I have forgotten how serious my rebellion is against him. Because you compare yourself to other people, right? Not to him. I'm better than my neighbor. I'm better than that guy on TV. I'm better than this politician. I'm better than whoever. And we always pick somebody to compare ourselves to that's worse than us, right? So we have to establish this idea in our hearts, I think, in order to approach these verses in a healthy way. I do believe that God receives more glory in his mercy than in his wrath, by the way. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the question then is, what does mercy mean? I hinted at this at our Christmas Eve service. What does mercy mean if there's no wrath? Think about it. Mercy is escaping punishment or pain that you deserve. Right? You deserve to have something taken away or to be, have a punishment, and then you escape it because somebody chose not to give it to you. It's going before the judge and being guilty, and everybody knows you're guilty. The judge knows you're guilty. You know you're guilty. It's plain as day, and he says instead of sending you to prison, he sends you to, you know, the spa. And there's, it's not because you said something smart or had a good lawyer. It's just because the judge decided he was going to have mercy on you. That's mercy. What's mercy if there's no wrath? It means nothing. We love to talk about God's mercy and his love for me and his grace, but none of that makes any sense or is worth anything if there's no wrath. So ironically, as we diminish our sin and diminish the holiness of God, we also diminish the value of his mercy and his kindness and his grace towards us. It's also important to note here that the wrath you see here in the verses we're going to read is for unbelievers. Those under the earth, on the earth, that phrase you'll see. It's a very specific technical phrase. It just means unbelievers, all right? It's also limited in scope, limited to one-third. Now, there's not a whole lot of hope in that because it starts in the, uh, in the first seven. You have a fourth, and now in the second group with the trumpets, you have a third, and in the last, it's going to be almost everybody, all right? So there is an increase that we see happening, which I think is telling about how we see history right now things are worse now than they used to be and that's there's a reason for that so these verses are a warning to those who are not under the safety of God's mercy to come in from the cold if you're not in Christ you are an object of God's wrath you need to see that if you're in Christ you're not <laughs> right so it's like it's like seeing what could be on your head and is not. The problem is, of course, we're living among those who are under his wrath. Which means it affects us. Like if your neighbor's house catches on fire, your house might get a little burnt too. That's how that works. Okay. So I'm going to summarize the first four trumpets, which is found in Revelation 8, 6 to 12. I'm going to summarize these because they're repeating themes we've already talked about in a lot of detail. The first four, the first four trumpets, and all the trumpet's doing is announcing. is exactly what you imagine it to be, right? Announcing this new thing, newsflash. Like, that's what it means. 
It's an announcement. Um, and so a trumpet blasts, and then you have a thing happen, okay? And the first one we see is hail and fire coming out of the sky. The first four are all have to do natural disasters, every, every, all four. And then the last three we'll talk about in a minute. So the first is hail and fire come down from the sky, and vegetation is destroyed. Again, I don't think this is meant to be taken literally. Hail is a real thing, and we've seen hail, but it's not just about hail. It's about the vegetation on the earth being destroyed. All this, this food, the food source, drying up, and there not being enough to go around. People dying because of it. Then we have something like a mountain. It says something like a mountain. So it's not a literal mountain, something like a mountain thrown into the, the ocean. And what happens is the ocean is polluted. The, all the, the seawater, salt water on the planet, is polluted and doesn't produce the life that it used to. And you even have this uh, description of the boats no longer being able to travel and all of that. The sea at this time was a, one of the number one sources of food for the people that lived there. I mean, all the disciples were fishermen. Not all of them, most of them. That's how they made their living. That's how they fed their families. Then you have wormwood, which is an interesting herb that is really bitter. And from what I read anyway, I'm assuming what I read was true. Uh, it was on the Internet, so it must be. Um, <laughs> But it's a very bitter herb, and it's actually that you, just an ounce of it diluted in 500 gallons of water can still be tasted. It's that potent of a bitter flavor, right? And so imagine wormwood in, being in the freshwater supply, and it's so bitter it actually makes you sick. That wormwood makes you sick but doesn't kill people, usually. It might kill little, little kids um, and elderly, but generally it doesn't kill people. It just makes them violently ill. Right? And so now you can't drink the water. There's no fresh water. And the, number f the fourth trumpet, you see the sun, the moon, and the stars taken out. The source of light for the earth is taken out. And so now everything's in darkness. These all seem to be, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, just natural disasters that make life here very difficult. Each one takes out a third of the people on the planet. This is nature under a curse for the purpose of judgment against those that need it to thrive, which is all of us. And then we have Revelation 8, verse 13. It says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. And it says, quote, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So now this is a change of an eagle who in the Bible is, not, is a bird of prey. It's not, we have these warm fuzzies about eagles in America. This is a bird of prey. It's a scary bird, right? Think, think if like you were like a rat and you saw an eagle. That's the vibe, all right? And this eagle says three woes, not woe, woe, woe like Backstreet Boys. <clears throat> woe as in pain, like warning, okay, W-O-E. There are going to be three woes. The last three trumpets, in other words, are going to be worse than the first four. So let's read these. 
chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Just imagine it. Let your imagination just picture it, what this looks like. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Ugh. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek his name is Apollyon. I know I told you to imagine this, and that's good, but you don't want to. Like, when you really start to picture this gross, like, locust-type thing that's about the size of a horse, and it doesn't have a locust head, that thing, the antenna, it's got the face of a human. That's creepy. And then its mouth is not a human mouth. It's like the, like the teeth of a lion, these the fangs, the big jowls, the canine teeth of a lion. This not just a normal tail, but this tail like the scorp like a scorpion with a big stinger on it. And there's so many it sounds like those battles. I have never heard this before, but I I've watched the movies. It's the best closest I can get, where you have just this horde of horses going down and attacking as an army and the sound of the rumbling hooves and the that's what their wings sound like. And these scary creatures have not just flown in out of the sky. Where they came from was this bottomless pit with black, dark, thick smoke coming out of it. And they have swarmed out of the earth because this angel fell and opened up a hole in the ground. I mean, talk about scary. Now remember, this is Jesus showing John this. This is not a demonic vision. I think if I had this dream one night, <laughs> I'd wake up and start rebuking the devil for giving me such a horrific dream. Wouldn't you? I hope you would. That would be my advice. If you called me and said, I had this weird dream, a hole opened up, smoke came out, and these creepy, crazy, scary creatures came out and started killing everybody, I would be like, oh, that's the devil. Right? But that's not the case here. This is from Jesus. So let's break this down a little bit. The star falling, I think it's fairly obvious, that's Satan. 
Jesus said in Luke 10, I saw Satan falling from heaven. Hell is the abyss. It's a common term used to refer to hell. Okay, that one's easy, I think. The locusts are a frightening depiction of demons being released to bring harm to those that do not belong to God. It says those who do not bear the seal of God on their foreheads. That's repeated revelation language for Christians, those who belong to God. So you have the seal, the name of Jesus written sometimes. Sometimes it's the, the Father's name. Sometimes it's both written on their foreheads. And then the, 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 the opposite of that is you have Satan right putting his mark, the mark of the beast, on people's foreheads. It's just a symbol of people who aren't Christians. All right? You have those two groups all throughout Revelation. So here, this is specifically not against those who, are, who belong to God, but it's against those who do not. And it's a third of those. So if you divide up the world's population, take out the Christians, the real Christians, right? Not just the ones who pretend, but the real Christians, take them out. And what's left, take a third of that, that's the effect. They're allowed by God to torment people for five months, which again, I don't think is a literal five months. It just means a short time, meaning not forever. The torment is like a scorpion sting, meaning it hurts terribly, but it's not fatal. Most scorpion stings, again, like if you're a small child, if you're physically weak, it might kill you, but generally it just makes you really sick and it hurts really bad. So it's like a scorpion, which is almost worse. It hurts so bad that people want to die. It's hard to know for sure exactly what the modern-day kind of representation of this would be but it's probably demonic torment in the form of emotional or psychological pain the kind of pain if you think about what's the kind of pain that makes somebody want to die but won't the common description of people with depression for example is that they want to die but they just don't have the energy or the courage or the will to actually commit suicide and quite often they just suffer in this like terrible mental state was not quite bad enough to push them over the edge. We read often about the people who do commit suicide and we think everybody who has suffers from depression commits suicide. Most don't. They just suffer. I think this is a great description of emotional pain, psychological pain. This doesn't seem to be physical, but of course it could be. I could be wrong. What's for sure is that this is the kind of pain that would cause someone to want to end their life but not do it. Many people have the endurance to continue living, but they remain tormented. When I was reading this, I just, one of the things I've been asking God recently is, why does it seem like, and you know, this is anecdotal, I don't have like surveys to answer this question, but why does it seem like at least to me that the number of people that I know in my life that suffer from emotional disorders, psychological problems, anxiety disorders, that sort of thing, why does that seem to be on the rise? Why does it seem like things like mass shootings are on the rise? Why is it increasing? Why, are these, why do I look around the world and I see so many, so many more people um, that seem to be emotionally and psychologically tormented in the world around me and I've been scratching my head about it like an idiot <laughs> for years now 
And here, I think, is the answer. So this does not mean that if you're emotionally afflicted at all that you're not a Christian. Because I know some of you will go there because of what I just said. Right? That is not what I'm saying. That's not what the text is saying. However, it might explain the continuing rise in various anxiety disorders, depression, etc. We at least should not be surprised based on reading this. So I'm also aware that just saying the word demons... Some of you are like, wait a second. This is getting weird. It's not getting weird. It's been weird for a long while, by the way. But this is a real thing, okay? And I'm not going to go into like a whole sermon on demonology. But I think it's important to note a couple of things. One is these demons that you see depicted here are not free agents, okay? They are released by God. They are allowed to do specific things, and that's it. They don't get to do whatever they want. In this verse and in others, they are never just like, I'm going to do whatever I please because I'm evil. They cannot torment believers in this text, and they are limited to a very short time span, five months. may not be literally five months, but it's a short period of time. God does not say to Satan, go and do whatever you please. He is on a leash all the time. It's the picture you see of Satan in the beginning of Job also. Job has to come to God and ask permission. I want to do this. Can I? And God says, no, but you can do this. <laughs> right? And, he, and all of that ultimately serves God's purpose. And I know that's the, theologically and logically difficult for a lot of people. Does that mean God does evil? No, it just means that everything, including Satan, is a dog on a leash, and he cannot do what he wants. And even Satan, against his will, is doing things that ultimately God will make good and will serve his purposes. Everything, including wicked things, will ultimately serve God's purpose. If nothing else, to just show his justice and his wrath against those things. We're going to see at the end here in the last verses, in the last trumpet, that we will actually rejoice and worship God, not just for his love and mercy to us, but we will worship God and rejoice and shout even at his wrath because we will see perfectly how perfectly just his wrath is, right? Because when we see him face to face, we also get to see his holiness perfectly, how holy he actually is and how sinful sin really is. And we'll see all of it like that. And then when we see his wrath poured out, on those who have rebelled against him and refused to repent, we will worship God. We'll be like, yay! Right? That feeling you feel now of like discomfort, like, oh, scary. I just want, I want Jesus to give me a hug because this is scary stuff. That feeling will be gone and it'll just be joy even at his wrath, right? I know that's hard to understand if you don't believe in God. I know it is. But it's because you don't believe in God that it's hard to understand. So these demons are not free agents. Demons are real things. They're just fallen angels. You should not be intimidated by them if you're in Christ. If you are not in Christ, if you're not a believer, they're, that, that's for you. You should be afraid. That's the point of these verses. All right, let's look at the sixth trumpet. Verses 12 to 21. 
The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. That's hearkening back to our original vision of the throne room of God, right? Verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, it just means an uncountable number. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. Picture it. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You can almost hear the incredulous tone of John as he writes those words. As he's seeing this second woe being poured out, a plague of disease. Poured out, taking a th- people still refusing to repent, watching this happen. And refusing to turn away from their idols. And he says, you can't even hear or see or speak, yet you worship them still. So these are diseases being breathed out by this demonic cord of lion-headed horses. Scary stuff. I don't know which is worse. A locust with the face of a human or a horse with the head of a lion. I don't know what's scarier. Breathing out like this diseased smoke out of its mouth. And I don't know which is more frightening, the disease and the plague or the people's refusal to repent as they watch. This is the ultimate in hard-heartedness and rebellion. This is the drama that we watch play out every day in our world. We watch God bring judgment after judgment to mankind, and mankind simply refuses to repent. I believe that this perspective on the wrath of God is one of the great reasons that we tend not to be overly concerned with witnessing to our neighbors. Is that we forget that if you're not in Christ, you are an object of God's wrath. The wrath of God, you have a target on your back. And if you have avoided these things up to this point in your life, it is just God's mercy. It is not that you have deserved to not receive his wrath. It's just God's mercy, right? That's all it is. And we forget this because we have God's name written on our foreheads if you're a Christian. And so you walk around the world experiencing God's blessing. And sometimes stuff is hard, but listen, let's be honest. God blesses you. And it's because of Jesus. That's why. 
And you forget this, and it takes the urgency, I think. I know this is true of me. Maybe I'm just confessing it for myself, and the rest of you guys are just nailing this one. I suspect not. But this is what I do. I just forget this. And so part of the point of reading this is not just a warning to those who are not in Christ saying, repent, come in out of the cold, get the target off your back. He loves you, received the mercy of God, just lavishly poured out on you. Like, why wouldn't you, right? But it's also for those of us who are in Christ to remember the whole point of why we want to demonstrate what Jesus is like. Is that this stuff is serious. When these things happen in the world, they're not just random acts of fate. When diseases break out and natural calamities happen and you look at the news and you see another thing that happened that took out a bunch of people it's not just a random thing that happened like that is very much according to revelation according to what god says about the world that is very much meant to be seen as god's act of judgment saying repent and turn and come to me why do you want to live under this We act like calling people to Christ is like calling people from one nice place to another nice place. When in reality we are calling them from standing in a thundering storm of wrath with the freaky locust beast (laughs) flying at them. And maybe it's passed over them two or three hundred times and they have experienced no calamity. No wrath, no judgment. And saying that's just because of God's mercy and saying, don't you want to take this opportunity to come in out of the cold? The seventh trumpet. So I told you we would rejoice and here it is. You have to jump forward in Revelation to chapter 11 to get the seventh trumpet. There's an interjection there, which we'll come back to later, not this morning. So the seventh trumpet is in chapter 11, verse 15 to 19, and here's what it says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for your rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So verse 19 really harkens back to Isaiah 6 that I read this morning. This doesn't mean that the ark of the covenant is going to be rediscovered and put back. The temple is going to be rebuilt, physically, literally rebuilt. Um, God will never be contained in a building again. Okay? 
He's not going to return back to a physical holy of holies to be contained behind that curtain ever again. That's not what this means. And that's, that's honestly, that's a heretical teaching. The very idea that, that, that God would, that what Jesus died for is negated and that he returns back to a pre-cross way of relating to his people is heretical, okay? It is not what this is teaching. It's like suddenly we get literal with things that we don't need to get literal with. This just means that the presence of God is seen, again, Isaiah chapter 6, that the whole world becomes his temple. It says that the, the what does he say, the, um, the kingdom of the world, that Satan's kingdom, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The mission of God is complete. That's the last trumpet, right? This is the end. This is the party at the end. Everything's done. All the wickedness has been judged. Every evil thing that has ever been done has been made right. God's all the people that belong in God's kingdom are in, right? God brought judgment until finally everybody who was going to repent, repented. Everybody's in. Everything's done. Everything's made right. And the world has been remade and sin has been banished and Satan and all of his followers and every evildoer has been thrown into hell and justice has been brought. And what do we do? When we see that completed and finished and we're staring into a beautiful eternal future is we fall, get off of our little puny throne once again, throw our puny little crown down at the feet of the Father and we throw our faces on the ground and we worship him all over again. That's what we do. As we are like Isaiah there in the temple, knowing in a sense we don't belong, but somehow we do anyway because of what Jesus has done. So the seventh trumpet does not herald another judgment. In a sense it does, but for those who don't believe, but it really it heralds the end. The completion of all things. The scroll that we started with has been opened, read, and fully executed by Jesus. This is what we look forward to. So I think this is the last important thing to understand when we talk about the wrath of God. Is to understand that it is actually a beautiful thing. It is. And we will see it that way one day. It is not a beautiful thing to those who were under it. But for those of us who were in Christ, it is a beautiful thing because it is just and it is right. And it means that God is wrapping things up to a conclusion. He is calling people to come in out of the cold. So why don't we stand up together and pray? We're going to... Matt has last minute pulled a song together. Bless him. And I'm going to pray. I, I was on my heart specifically is just to pray for um, a sense of urgency for us. That we would feel like, you know, when I was teaching Hebrews years ago, I talked about, you know, that some of Hebrews talks about, you know, like the abyss. And, and there's a sense where we are like walking across a tightrope and we can feel the heat of hell just below us. 
and it's still hot enough to know it's there. And it creates an urgency in you, right? I'm not falling in. It's not possible. If you're in Jesus' hand, no one can take you out. I believe that wholeheartedly. But it's good sometimes to feel the heat of it, right? To, to see what you deserve because of your sin, to create an urgency in you, one, for your own personal holiness, but also that you would reach out and just demonstrate what Jesus is like and begin to call people in out, of, out from under that storm. Amen. So I want to pray for that for us this morning, okay? God, we ask you uh, that you would help us to feel the heat this morning. Not because we are, if we are in Christ, in you, if we are yours, if your name is written on our forehead, that we're not in danger of falling in so much as we need to be reminded that you are a holy, holy, holy God. God, I pray that you would energize us this morning for personal holiness, that we would not diminish our own sin or diminish your holiness. And also, God, would you energize us for mission. God, that we would um, just become zealous to see the scroll executed in the world, that every, every person you're calling into your kingdom will be brought in. And God, that our friends and neighbors, God, that we would have an urgency about how we speak to them. God, that they are not mere mortals. God, that they are not um, just people, no-name people in the world, but they are souls destined for either eternal glory or eternal torment. They are either objects of wrath or objects of mercy. And God, I pray that you would energize us as a church, give us a fresh zeal for seeing the world as you see it. God, as weird as it is for us to save, God, in light of these verses, in light of the seventh trumpet that is going to be blown one day, God, we thank you for being a just and holy God. thank you for it. God, would you hasten the day and return. In the name of Jesus, amen.